But with that, let's open up our Bibles. You should already be there. Isaiah chapter 13. And let's go before the Lord with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you so much for the great privilege it is for me to be able to open up your word tonight and teach these people I love with all of my heart. And and Lord, what's really cool to me is I know that you love them even more than I possibly can. Lord, you're intimately involved in each of their lives. And so I pray, Lord, though I'm standing behind or sitting behind this pulpit tonight, that you would be our teacher. Lord, there's, there's a lesson in each of these nations we're going to look at tonight, and, and, and may one or two of them just apply to our hearts right where we're at. Lord, may this not just be a, a lesson in history or a lesson in prophecy tonight, but God, we want to hear your voice. We want to be changed by our time in your word tonight. And so again, I thank you for these men and women that are here. Again, some of them for the fourth day in a row. And I just pray you would bless them, encourage them, and strengthen them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, tonight we continue our look in the book of Isaiah. And I want to begin tonight with a much, much, much shorter introduction than uh, we did last week. But the reason I kind of want to go back to the introduction just a little bit is is to clarify one thing from last week. We put up this uh, series of kings and and the dates next to them. And as some pointed out, they differed a little bit from the dates on the, the other handout we gave you last week of this list of kings. And understand, why. Some scholars like to date the guy from when he was born to when he died. Some list of kings list them from when they ruled to when they stopped ruling. And some of the dates overlap. And people ask, well, why is that? Because oftentimes a king would appoint his son as a co-ruler, the reason to get the people used to his son being on the throne. So it wouldn't be a total shock once the old man died. That's some of the things they would do. And so the dates vary. The dates aren't what's important. What's important is you to understand the context in which Isaiah was written. And we started with King um, Amaziah there at the top. He was a good, godly king. And he had a brother, a prince, a brother, you know, by the name of Amos. And Amos has a son whose name is Isaiah. What does that tell us? Isaiah was a royal. He was part of the royal family. His dad wasn't king, but his dad was the brother of the king. So he grew up in the royal court. He began to really minister as a young man in in the time of Uzziah. And Uzziah was another godly king, but way more than godly, he was super political. His ability to rule the nation was really unmatched in Israel's history since the time of Solomon. Their borders expanded in his day. It was was a great time to raise up as a prophet. And that was also true under Jotham, Uzziah's son. The trouble came with King Ahaz. King Ahaz learned nothing from his dad and nothing from his granddad or his great-granddad. Ahaz was a wicked king. He started worshiping all the gods of the foreign nations, actually offering his kids as sacrifices to Molech. And and Isaiah is thrust from having two previous kings who, what's it been like? He's royal and he's a loved prophet. He's a man of God. And he he must have eaten at their table and gotten, you know, little goodies from the king. I mean, that's probably what happened until, until Ahaz is on the throne. Now he's on the outs. Now he's hunted. Now he, now he's persecuted. And, and you see it come out in chapters like Isaiah 7 when Isaiah is addressing King Ahaz at that time. But once Ahaz passes off the scene, Isaiah is still, still going strong. And next comes King Hezekiah. And Hezekiah is 
one of the greatest, godliest kings in all of Israel's history. And that must have been a blessing for Isaiah. (laughs) After years under wicked King Ahaz, he gets a friend in Hezekiah, and they are friends. And we'll see next week that together they save the city of Jerusalem from certain death. One of my favorite parts in the whole book is next week. You don't want to miss it, as we'll see just three chapters next week. We'll cover a lot more tonight, but just three chapters and the story there. It is second to none where Isaiah and Hezekiah team up to save the nation of Judah. He's alive for one more king. He makes it into Hezekiah's sons, Manasseh. And Manasseh was like a throwback to Ahaz. He was wicked. And in one of the first years of Manasseh's reign, he takes his dad's old best friend. And what does he do to his dad's best friend? He saws him in two. Isn't that respectful to his father? His father's best friend, and he literally has him sawn in two, and Isaiah is put to death. So that's, that's the context in which this book was written. Those were the kings that were ministering and living while this book was happening. I just think it makes the book even more fascinating to understand what Isaiah was facing, good times under Uzziah and Jonathan, other tough times under Ahaz and Manasseh, and a friend, a deep friend in Hezekiah. This book, remember, divides into four parts. The first part are prophecies concerning Judah. Judah, for the first 12 chapters, it's all about Jerusalem. Isaiah is just speaking to God's people. He's pointing out their sin in the first five chapters. Then God calls him as a prophet in the sixth chapter. And in chapters 7 through 12, God, even though he says trouble's coming, he gives them hope that Messiah is on the way. Some of the greatest messianic prophecies are really right in chapters 7 through 12. And so hopefully you've had a time to read those and look at those and soak those in because some good stuff God says about the coming king in Isaiah 7 through 12. But tonight we move on to the second part of the book and that is prophecies concerning the nations. After spending 12 chapters just focusing on Jerusalem, just focusing on the the nation of Judah, God is then going to speak to the surrounding nations. One of the titles that prophets are often given in the scriptures besides prophet is seer. And the reason they're called seers is they see things that others don't because God is giving them insight. And so what we're going to see is God shows Isaiah things about seven nations surrounding the city of Jerusalem. And and so we're going to look at those tonight. Again, we handed you a map. The reason is we could have put it on the screen, but I know what it would have been like. It would have been like this. Huh? Where's that at? So we just killed some trees tonight. I'm sorry, tree huggers. And we put it out here for you tonight so you can see it right in front of you. As we talk about those nations, I encourage you, write little notes. You have to write little, but little notes about what their past was. And we'll see tonight what their future is as well. And the first one on the list, the first one on the list, these seven nations that that Isaiah is going to address, the first one on the list is Babylon. And you can see Babylon, the city, kind of in the right side of your map there, in between the Tigris and Euphrates River in the region of Babylonia. That's the city of Babylon, and God's going to address them starting in chapter 13. Look at it with, with me. Then the burden against Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. Skip to verse 17. 
17 of chapter 13. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them who will not regard silver. And as for gold, they will not delight in it. Also, their bows will dash the young men to pieces. They will have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eye will not spare the children and Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride will be when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It'll be never inhabited again, nor it'll be settled from generation to generation, nor will the Arabians pitch their tents there. They will be shepherds and there will sheepfolds there, but wild beasts of the deserts will lie there and their houses will be full of owls and ostriches will dwell there. The wild goat will caper there and the hyenas will howl in their citadels and the jackals in their pleasant palaces. Her time is near to come. Her days will not be prolonged. Babylon had its origins at the city of Babel back in Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis 11, man decided they didn't need God and they began to build a tower to the heavens. And you know the story. God confused their languages and they begin to babble, which is where we get the word babble, Babylon. And yet that beginning of rebellion against God set the tone for a city for the future to come. And by the time of Isaiah, understand Babylon isn't the world empire yet. The world empire at the time that Isaiah is writing is Assyria, which you can also see on your map there. Just look a little north of Babylon and you see Assyria. And Syria ruled all over that, that region from, 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 from Sumar over there all the way to the Hittite empire. They ruled all the north over there. They were the major problem in Isaiah's day. But Isaiah, through the Lord, sees past the time when Assyria would dominate to the day when Babylon would come to power. Babylon would come to, come to Jerusalem in 586 BC and conquer Jerusalem. It wouldn't be the Assyrians. It would be the Babylonians. It was the Babylonians they needed to look out for. And Isaiah is letting them know that hundreds of years before in chapter 13 and chapter 14. But we also see in the end of chapter 13, the verses we read, that Babylon was not going to last forever either. And the amazing part of this prophecy is, again, just the, just the exactness of God's word. In verse 17, if you look at it, God says the Medes are going to be involved in their destruction. Now, I, I know in our day, two, 3,000 years later, it's kind of hard to see the importance of this. But please understand, in Isaiah's day, the Medes were an insignificant population group. They're not even on your map. <laughs> They're not even on your map because all they were were a backwards town at the time that Isaiah is writing. Yet Isaiah says, the Medes, the Medes are going to be the group that will conquer the Babylonians. That would have been unthinkable in Isaiah's day. It would have been crazy talk in Jeremiah's day a couple hundred years later. Why? Because Babylon was a superpower and the, the Medes were this little backwards town. And yet what happens historically? The Medes join up with the Persians. Cyrus the Mede joins up with the Persian Empire and they come after Babylon. And Babylon historically, check it out for yourself. At first they try to ignore them. They try to offer them money to go away. What does Isaiah say hundreds of years before? They don't want gold. They don't want silver. They want your head, Babylon. 
And what Cyrus the Persian does, even as the Persians and the Medes are at their door, you know the story from Daniel chapter 5. The Babylonians aren't worried. They're throwing a party. They're drinking it up. They're partying down. And while they're partying inside, Cyrus is diverting the Euphrates River around the city of Babylon, and he goes right under their gates and conquers the city. That would have been unthinkable, not even close. No one could have predicted that would have happened. Kind of like the beatdown Ohio State put on the Pac-12 this week. I could never see that happening, right, Tom Angioni? But anyways, this even greater so, even greater so, the Medes, no way they did. Why? It's exactly what the Bible said. It's exactly what the Bible said would happen and would come to pass. Now, Eventually, the Persians then would rule also in the city of Babylon. And after them, Alexander the Great would rule in Babylon. But after the time of Alexander the Great, the place became a place for foxes and jackals. I mean, even to our modern times, when Saddam Hussein was alive, he had visions of rebuilding Babylon, but it never truly happened. And the Arabs to this day will not camp on the side of the old city, for they call it the place where the devil dances, an exact fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 13, verse 20. Amazing, amazing, amazing things. We move on to the second nation that Isaiah addresses, though, and that is Moab in chapter 15. So turn a little forward to chapter 15, and we'll get to the nation of Moab. Moab, you can see on your map there, is uh, just north of Edom, right there, uh, right below the city of Jerusalem. And listen to what Isaiah says to them. The burden against Moab... Because in the night, Er of Moab is laid waste and destroyed. Because in the night, Ker of Moab is laid waste and destroyed. He has gone up to the temple of Dibion, to the high places to weep. Moab will wail over Nebo and over uh, Medeba. And all the heads of baldness and every beard will be cut off. Their streets will clothe themselves with sackcloth. And on the tops of their houses and their streets, everyone will wail, weeping bitterly. Go to chapter 6. And look with me in verse 13. Chapter 16, verse 13. This is the word which the Lord spoke concerning Moab since that time. But now the Lord has spoken, saying, Within three years, as the years of a hired man, the glory of Moab will be despised with all the great multitude, and the remnant will be very small and feeble. The nation of Moab began in a sinful and rebellious way. Again, if you've studied the book of Genesis, none of this is new to you. Because in Genesis, we have the story of Abraham and Lot. And Abraham has a nephew named Lot. And their herds begin to get so big that they can't really coexist together. And so Abraham says to his nephew, you go north, I'll go south. You go east, I'll go west. Just you decide where you want to go and I'll go the opposite way. And Lot, he says... I'm going to go to Sodom and Gomorrah. (laughs) Bad choice. Sodom and Gomorrah was a great place to raise cattle. The fields were very, very lush. It was a horrible place to raise kids. And Lot and his family paid for that dearly, by the way. Maybe that's a word for someone here tonight. You're trying to make a decision, and the decision, man, it looks good financially. It looks like it'll be a blessing to make your family's bottom line increase. Can I ask you? How is it going to affect your family spiritually? Just pray it through. Just pray it through because that, that in the end is far more important. Just ask Lot. He brings his family down to Sodom and Gomorrah and by the time it's time to destroy that city, all he's got left is his wife and two of his daughters. The rest of his family are gone. 
And even his wife and daughters are messed up because when they're fleeing the city, the Bible tells us that his wife looks back longingly to the city and God turns her into a pillar of salt. Now he's just got his two girls. And their story is, oof. They get to a point where they decide we're never going to have a husband. And so they get their dad drunk and they sleep with their father and they have babies, a baby with their dad. And one of them names their baby Moab, which by the way, literally means from dad. That's just disgusting. But anyways, (laughs) from dad, he becomes the father of the Moabite people. The most famous Moabite of all time, of course, was Ruth. Ruth. Ruth, living in her homeland and serving the gods that, you know, she uh, decided to give all of that up and follow Naomi back to Israel and serve the true and living God. She married a man by the name of Boaz, who was the grandfather of King David, who, of course, was the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. So God's grace over all the situation with Lot and his daughters is clearly seen. But the people of Moab in general were antagonistic toward the Jews. It was the Moabites who would not let the Jews pass through their territory when Moses was leading them out of Egypt to the promised land. And the Moabites continued to battle the Jews throughout their history. But listen, listen. When Assyria was on the prowl to take out all nations around, Moab turns to Jerusalem for help. And the Jews offered to help, but wanted Moab not just to accept their help, but we read in history that the Jews said, we want you to accept the Jewish God as your own. And unlike Ruth in their past, the Moabites of Isaiah's day would not. They refused the help of the Jews, fought pridefully against the Assyrians. And because of that, Isaiah 16, 14 says, within three years, and it was, within three years of this writing, they were destroyed. And more than that, because they resisted so pridefully, they were humbled by the Assyrians and great atrocities were done to them by the Assyrian armies. It's a great lesson for us, by the way. You know, so often there's a tendency for us to turn to the Lord when we need help, right? You know, there's nothing in the bank account. Lord, help me. I need your help. We, we, we get a bad report from the doctor. I'm sick. Oh, Lord, heal me. Help. And sometimes the Lord graciously does help, no matter what you do. But you know what he'd rather have? He'd rather have you follow him. He'd rather have you walk with him. He doesn't want to just bail you out of a financial situation. He doesn't want to just heal you and then have you walk away from him for the rest of your life because what will that help? You'll be a rich man separated him from eternity. You'll be a healthy person who doesn't know God for eternity. That won't help at all. God says, I don't want to just help you. I want to know you. I want to walk with you. I want to dwell with you. An important lesson for all of us. The third nation we see here is Damascus. Damascus. Go to chapter 17. Chapter 17, verse 1. The burden against Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease from being a city. It'll be a ruinous heap. The cities of Aor are forsaken, and they will be for flocks which lie down, and no one will make them afraid. The fortress will also cease from, from Ephraim and the kingdoms of Damascus, and the remnant of Syria will be the glory of the children of Israel, says the Lord of hosts. 
Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. In that day, man will look to his maker. His eyes will have respect for the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, to the work of his hands. He will not respect what his fingers have made, nor the wooden images, nor the increase altars. The nation of Damascus, you can see the, on your map there, the city of Damascus, it was the capital of the Syrian Empire. Now listen carefully. Not the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire was a world empire. They ruled again from you know, the, the, the gulf that's there on the right side of your picture all the way to the Hittite Empire. The Syrian Empire, the Syrian Empire just ruled just north of Damascus, about the size of the nation of Syria today if you are familiar with what a current map looks like. But these Syrians, not Assyrians, the Syrians played a huge role in the development of the nation of Israel. And not in a good way. The nation of Israel envied the Syrians, especially their city of Damascus. Because listen, it was a cosmopolitan area compared to Samaria, the capital of the Israeli empire. If you were going to go to the big town, it's kind of like maybe heading to New York City or something like that. I mean, if you were going to go to where, where everyone was, where the fashion shows were at, you wouldn't go to Samaria and not even really Jerusalem. You would head to Damascus in their day. And what that created in Israel was a, was a longing to be like the Syrians. The effect of Syrians' influence in Israel's struggles with idolatry cannot be overstated. And I find that so, such an important lesson because think this through with me. The nation of Israel will eventually be invaded by Assyria. But think about how the progression went of Assyrian invasions. We'll put it up on the screen. First, they conquered Moab in 734 BC. We just read about that a minute ago. Assyria came to them. Moab asked Jerusalem for help. They refused to serve the God of Jerusalem. And Moab was decimated by the Assyrians. Secondly, secondly, Assyria conquered Syria in 732 BC. And it would be another 10 years, 10 years, before they would end up in Samaria and conquer Israel, which remembers the northern 10 tribes. Isaiah is writing from Jerusalem in Judah in the southern nation. It's like God gave Israel two shots across the bow. You, You can't trust in these false gods for help. You can't trust in this this city that you envy and you want to be like. You can't trust in them. You you realize you're going to trust in them, but they will destroy you. And yet they don't learn. Well, that's great for them. My question is, what about you and I? What about you and I? There's something inside us. We, you know, maybe we look and we see other people struggling with similar things that we are. We see him fall. We think, but I won't, I won't. Yeah, Betty Sue does this and she's okay. And Billy Bob has a couple of ladies on the side, but look how God's blessing him. If your name is really Billy Bob or, or Billy Baby, I'm sorry, I I'm, not, I'm making this up as I go along. But if your name is Billy Bob and you have a couple of ladies on the side, uh, maybe the Lord's trying to talk to you tonight. But anyways, God will often allow you to see other people fail. You think, well, that guy does that. That guy has that struggle in his life. Sometimes God will let you see what, it, what happens in their life. But listen, listen, there's something inside us that thinks, but that won't happen in me. I can let this substance go unchecked in my life. 
I can get involved in putting this stuff before my eyes. And what happened to him, what happened to her, won't happen to me. Are you so sure? You see, they sat in Samaria and said, what happened to Moab and what happened to Syria? We're worshiping the same gods as them. We're turning our back on the true and living God and worshiping their same bondages. But what happened to them will not happen for us. And for 10 years, they were right. As God graciously allowed them to repent. But eventually, sin always has the same effect. Do you see what I'm saying? Friends, sometimes God allows you to see ahead of time in somebody else what your struggle is going to produce. And you know why? Because he loves you. And he wants you to not think, please get out of your mind that somehow it'll be different for you. It won't, it won't, it won't. And God has brought you here tonight to once again say, just repent. He's not upset, he's not mad, he's not fr- He just wants your heart. And if you'll repent, the same fate doesn't have to be for you. The fourth nation on the list is Egypt. Egypt. Egypt, you can see, is in the bottom left-hand corner of your map. Egypt is very famous. Look with me, if you would, in chapter 19. The burden, the burden against Egypt. Behold, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and will come to Egypt. And the idols of Egypt will totter in his presence. And the heart of Egypt will melt in its, in its midst. And I will set Egyptians against Egyptians, and everyone will fight his brother, and everyone against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom, and the spirit of Egypt will fail in its midst. And I will destroy their councils, and they will consult the idols, and the charmers, and the medians, and the sorcerers, and the Egyptians I will give into the hand of the cruel master, and the fierce king will rule over them, says the Lord of hosts. And the waters will fail from the sea and the rivers will be wasted and dried up and the rivers will turn foul and the brooks of defense will be emptied and dried up and the reeds and rushes will wither and the papyrus reeds by the river and by the mouth of the river and everything sown by the river will wither and be driven away and be no more and fishermen will mourn and those who lament cast hooks into the river and they will languish who spread nets on the waters. Moreover, those who work with fine flax and those who weave fine fabric will be ashamed and its foundations will be broken and all who make wages will be troubled of soul. Egypt has been a world power since the earliest days of civilization and the Bible records it as so. We see Abraham going to Egypt for help as early as Genesis chapter 12. Of course, the nation of Egypt exists to this day. But Egypt today is certainly not the power it was in biblical times. And one of the reasons is because of what is prophesied in these chapters. As the Assyrian army made it sweep through the Middle East, sweeping through that map that you see there, taking over Damascus, taking over Moab, taking over Edom, taking over northern Israel, they were heading somewhere. They were heading towards Egypt. And Egypt, as Assyria is coming, what do they do? Isaiah tells us they turn to their gods. They turn to their gods. They turn to their wise men. They turn to their their pantheon of gods. And guess what? Their gods couldn't save them. Does that sound like a story you've heard before for Egypt? Yes. The whole book of Exodus. The whole book of Exodus. They've got this group of people called the Jews in bondage. And God sends up Moses and says, let my people go. Remember? And they say, we'll never let them go. 
And what does God do? He orchestrates 10 plagues. Why 10? Because it's a cool round number. No, because with each of these plagues, it's an assault. It's an assault on a different Egyptian god and a a different uh, Egyptian deity, every one of them, to the point where God then buries the final Egyptian god, their army, in the Red Sea. It's like God says over and over again, you think you're strong, Egypt. You think your gods are mighty. They're nothing compared to me. Did Egypt learn this important lesson? No. Because here they are, generations later, a major world power is coming to get them. What do they do? Turn to these same gods that were shown powerless, powerless to the God of Israel. Now that's sad, but listen, listen, listen to me. Listen to me. You know what's worse? What's worse is one of the things Isaiah faced his entire ministry was the city of Jerusalem wanting to go to Egypt and go to their gods to get them out of the Assyrian situation. Now think about that logic with me for a second. What's, what nation was in bondage in Egypt when God freed that nation? The Jews. Whose God freed the nation of Israel from Egypt? The God of Israel. So now that Israel's in trouble, who are they going to? The nation that got whooped by their God? What? In fact, in fact, in fact, if you're reading ahead, chapter 20 of Isaiah is great. It's great. If you haven't read yet, you might want to read that tonight. You know why? Because God, God tells Isaiah, you think you want to be a prophet? Think again. Because God tells Isaiah, here's what you're going to do for me for the next three years. You're going to walk around the city of Jerusalem naked. That's in the Bible, chapter 20. If I'm lying, I'm dying. It's in there. He tells him this. He tells him this. Go walk around. And why? Why? Because he, no, it's not weird. Because what the Assyrians would do is they would come into your city, they would strip you down, they put a hook in your jaw, and they drag you back to Nineveh, the Assyrian capital. And God used Isaiah graphically, graphically, to say, if you don't give up this going to Egypt stuff, then God will let you have the same protection the Egyptians are going to have. And this is how you're going to end up. Crazy, crazy, crazy what God asked Isaiah to do. In fact, we're starting a new ministry here at Calvary Chapel. No, just kidding. No, we're not. No, 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 we're not. <laughs> some scholars, some scholars say that he, he wasn't really naked. He, he just, he was wearing his underwear and it was only for certain days of the week. Is that really better? Is that, is, that, even if, is that really better? Is that really better if, you know, Pastor Eddie said, God told me to wear my underwear, but it's only on Wednesdays. Is that okay? That would not be okay. We would not let that happen. You can rest assured. But God had Isaiah do it for a very important reason because he was trying to get it through the thick skull of his people. Why would you trust in gods and a people that I've already proven to you that I'm better than? Hey, church. Why do we do the same sometimes? There is no God like our God. And yet, what do we do sometimes? We go, oh, I got to turn to the God of financial security. That'll save me. Oh, yeah, that's worked so well for so many people in the past. Oh, I just got to turn to relationships. They'll fulfill me. Has it worked so far in your life? And I think the Lord, not, not frustrated, but just brokenhearted because he loves you, he'd say, why do we keep turning to these things? that have let us down time and time again, why don't you just turn to me? 
Why don't you just surrender to me? Why don't you just say, God, I've got this issue in my life. I've got this coming against me in my life. I got this around the corner. And here's what I know. Money won't do it. People won't do it. You, Lord. I'll have to bless his heart tonight. Cry out to him. Cry out to him. Some other things in this chapter of notes. Some scholars see verses 5 through 10 as a prophecy of the Aswan Dam. Some of you know that, that uh, you know, the prophets would speak of local judgments and sometimes things that were right around the corner, but sometimes they'd see things that would happen years down the road. And in Scripture, we see this often with judgments of a nation. We see a local judgment that's seen right away, and, and then over time, another judgment came, comes to pass. And this local judgment of Assyria coming to destroy Egypt uh, certainly came to pass, but other scholars see fulfillment in the construction of the Aswan Dam. The dam, just to give you just a little bit of background, was originally constructed to regulate the yearly floods and droughts that were so common in Egypt up until 1960 when the dam was completed. The problem was, every 10 years or so, the Nile would just flood, and it would totally destroy a whole year's worth of crops, and that would put Egypt into a time of famine. So someone got this brilliant idea. If we just dam up the Nile River then we can regulate the flow and we'll never have floods and we'll never have droughts. Well, the problem is, even though they would lose a crop every 10 years or so due to heavy flooding, that didn't compare to losing the fertile soil. You see, when the Nile floods, it brings all of this nutrients to the soil where where Egypt needs to grow its crops. And now they've been slowly choking that out since the 1960s. The fishing industry has suffered, as Isaiah prophesied in verse 8, as the dam has caused the salt content of the Mediterranean Sea around the nation of Egypt to actually increase. You see, before, huge amounts of fresh water were being dumped into that region by the Nile River. Now that it's regulated, they see an explosion of extra salt in the region. They have also seen a certain certain type of snail that is rarely was seen before the 1960s. It has gotten a foothold in the less less salty river, extra salty uh, Mediterranean there, and it's eradicated the natural wetland reeds, again, important for fertile soil and fishing. And many scholars see all of that foreshadowed in chapter 19, which again, every time I read these prophetic books, I just get amazed at the exactness of God's word. And I, and I want to point that out because one more thing in chapter 19, one more thing. Sometimes we just go, I don't know if this will really happen, but everything else has happened in chapter 19. They were destroyed by Assyria. They have a great, great, you know, um, ecological disaster going on right now, just like, just like God said. But, but look, at, look at verse Look at verse 12. Where are they? Where are your wise men? Let them turn now and know that the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. Oh, that's not what I want to read. Uh, okay, verse 19. 19. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. And it will be a sign for a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they will cry to the Lord because of the oppressors and he will send them a savior, a mighty one. He will deliver them and the Lord will be known to Egypt and the Egyptians will, be know, will know the Lord in that day and will make sacrifices and offerings. Yes, they will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. Verse 22. And the Lord will strike 
Egypt and he will strike and heal it and they will return to the Lord and they will be entreated by them and he will heal them. And in that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria and the Assyrians will come into Egypt and Egypt into Assyria and the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. And in that day, Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land with the Lord of hosts shall bless saying, in blessed is Egypt, my people, Assyria, the work of my hands and Israel, my inheritance. Check this out. Is God worshiped in Egypt today? Of course not. Well, some of the Coptic Christians do, but, but, but as a majority, of course not. Of course not. Assyria, Assyria, the, the Assyrian people are gone, but the nation of Assyria is the region known as what nation today? Iraq, Iraq. What? What? You're telling me there's a future when Egypt, Iraq, and Israel all are going to worship God together? Impossible. Not according to Isaiah, who has gotten everything right so far in chapter 19. You know what that tells me? Just hold on, people. There's some parts of this world that we look at and we just go, I have no idea. (laughs) Don't lose hope. Oh, it might get a lot worse before it gets better. But someday, someday, you mark my words, Egypt's going to worship the Lord. Assyria's going to worship the Lord as Israel's going to worship the Lord. How do I know it? Because everything has come to pass so far. This last thing, you mark my words, it'll come to pass. The fifth nation in this list, we're almost there, guys. The fifth one is the nations of Arabia. Now, Arabia is the hardest to see. If you look at the thing that says ancient Near East, just look below it, and you'll see the little word in light gray there, Arabia. That's this area that God is addressing here in chapter 21. Chapter 21, look at verse 13 in chapter 21. The burden against Arabia. In the forest of Arabia, you will lodge. And your traveling uh, companies of the the Dedanites, O inhabitants of the land of Tema, bring water to him who is thirsty. With their bread they met him who fled, and they fled from the swords and the drawn sword, from the bent bow and from the distresses of war. For thus says the Lord to me, within a year, according to the year of a hired man, the glory of Keter will fall, and the remainder of the number of archers and the mighty men of the people of Keter will be diminished for the Lord God of Israel has spoken it. When you read in your Bibles of the tribes of Sheba and Dedan, known as Arabia here, just generally in Isaiah chapter 21, you're reading about these Arab tribes. Now, how did they start? They actually were descendants of Abraham. Abraham first was married to Sarah. He had one one son through Sarah, right? Isaac. He was married uh, then to Hagar, and he had a son uh, named Ishmael. But let's not forget, once Sarah died, Abraham married again. He married a gal by the name of Keturah. And, And two of the kids he had with Keturah was Sheba and Dedan. And they went to be the father of most of the Arab peoples today. Now, historically, Isaiah's looking into the future. And he sees again this invasion of Assyria as they start sweeping over, getting, getting Damascus, getting Moab, getting Edom, coming to Egypt. Now they're moving out to Arabia. And as they come to these Arabian tribes, what we know from history is what, what, they, what happened is exactly what Isaiah described. Hearing that Assyria was coming, the nomadic Arabian tribes left the standard trade routes and hid in the forest. 
They were supported by the town of Tima, which is a little south of your map. It's not on the map there. But by driving these large nomadic tribes with animals and families, they were no match for an on-the-move Assyrian army who caught them and killed many of them in the wilderness. A few survived, and the remnant became the people known today as those in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is the descendants of Sheba and Dedan that made it through the Assyrian invasion that's prophesied here in Isaiah chapter 21. Now, besides the historical connotations, I find it fascinating, by the way, that as you search the scriptures, the Bible never speaks of Sheba and Dedan, which is modern-day Saudi Arabia, as ever being at war with Israel. Now, think that through with me. It never says Egypt's going to war with them, and it never says Saudi Arabia's going to war with them. Now, I know, I know today that, that Egypt and Saudi Arabia are not friendly toward the nation of Israel, but you also know they're one of the only nations in the region that have a non-aggression pact with Israel, these two nations. Just think through what I just said. Isaiah's writing 500 years, 600 years before Jesus, so 2,600 years ago, and the world that he describes exactly fits with the world we have today. When he looks in the future, he sees even, even who's not involved in the battle. When we get to Ezekiel 38, which is not too long from now, we're moving at a rapid pace through these prophets. When we get there, we'll slow way down. And we'll go through that list in Ezekiel 38, and it's amazing, because that's yet in the future. And the political alliances that exist today are exactly as Ezekiel saw it 2,500 years ago. It's amazing. Israel's afraid Egypt's going to get them. They're afraid Saudi Arabia's going to get them. Read your Bible. That's not what's going to happen. Danger's coming from a completely different direction, and we'll get there when we get to the prophet Ezekiel. The sixth nation on the list is actually not a foreign nation at all. God turns his attention again to Jerusalem in Isaiah chapter 22. Isaiah 22, it says, The burden against the valley of vision... What ails you now that you have gone up to the housetops? You who are full of noise, a tumultuous city, a joyous city. Your slain men are not slain with the sword, nor dead in battle. Look at verse 8. Verse 8. He removed the protection of Judah. You looked in the day to the armor of the house of the forest. You saw the damage to the city of David. It was great. And you gathered together the water and the laurel pool, and you numbered the houses of Jerusalem and the houses you broke down to fortify the wall. You also made reservoirs between the two walls for the water of the old pools, but you did not look to its maker nor did you have respect from him who fashioned it long ago. Isaiah still has something to say to Jerusalem in this list of foreign nations. You know why? Because they are acting at the moment just like the foreign nations. They're getting involved in worshiping these other gods. They're looking to their own protection instead of, as he says there in verse 11, looking to the Lord. And Assyria, we'll see it next week, Assyria is going to come to Jerusalem's door and yet God is going to fight them back. But it really wasn't because of how the nation was behaving. You know why, why it was? Because at that time, Israel had, or Judah had, a king on the throne, fasted and prayed, and a prophet in the pulpit, so to speak, that loved God with all of his heart and interceded. And when those two things came together, we'll see it next week, God miraculously, sovereignly got involved. It's amazing. We'll look at it next week. But 
The problem with this is almost 200 years later, Babylon is going to be at Jerusalem's door. And many of their kings will look back at the story we'll look at next week and say, no one can defeat us. The Assyrian Empire was the greatest empire of the time. They couldn't defeat us. It wasn't about you in Assyria. It was the fact you had a king fasting and praying and a prophet in the pulpit who was loving God. And they had kings in Jeremiah's day that were twiddling their thumbs and worshiping idols. And they took their prophet out of the pulpit and threw him in the prison. And guess what happened? Jerusalem was burned to the ground by Babylon. That's historical. That's what these chapters are about. In fact, in fact, chapters 24 through 35 is called the little apocalypse by Bible scholars because it's all these sets of woes and warnings about that time that would come 200 years from, from this moment that it's written when Judah and Jerusalem would be overrun by Babylon. It's called the little apocalypse because it's written in the same style as the book of Revelation with warnings and woes. Assyria was going to come and what Jerusalem misunderstood about their history is yes, God was with them when Assyria came but their king was praying and fasting. Their prophet was interceding not not in prison, as we'll see in Jeremiah's day. And I think, I think, I think this is an important word to our country this time. You see, our country was founded by many men and women who loved God. And yet there's something in the mindset of America that thinks that because we print on our money in God we trust that somehow the sovereign hand of protection of God is still on our country. I don't know, friends. I don't know, friends. Notice what he says to Judah. I'm going to take away my hand of protection. You see, you see, 200 years ago for us, we had presidents and senators that would get on their face and fast and pray. We had pastors who would get in their pulpits and proclaim righteousness and purity and justice. And today, so often we have leaders who, even the good ones, seem way more concerned about being fiscally conservative than they do about fasting and praying and seeking the Lord. Too many pulpits today, the pastors are concerned with being popular and famous and not just saying what this book says, which is, repent, (laughs) repent, get right. And precious people, I love this country with all of my heart. I remember when I was in Bible college, they took us down to Mexico to get a heart for missions, get a heart for the nations, and that's awesome. Then they gather us all together and ask us what we learned. We're sitting on a hilltop there in Tijuana, kind of looking over the nation, and, and what did you learn? And everybody's like, I, I want to serve the Lord in some foreign country. And he got around to me, and I said, all I know is I'm looking over to that, that nation of great wealth right across the border, and that nation, the United States, they need Jesus. That's a, that was my response to the missions trip. I need to get back to the United States because the United States needs Jesus. And the missionaries were very upset at me. But that's, that's my passion. That's my vision. People love go to Mexico, win people to Jesus in Mexico. Amen, 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 amen. Someone's got to win this country. Because if this country doesn't repent, If this country doesn't get... Well, then the little apocalypse is coming for us too. So what do we do? We need to pray. We need to pray.
if my people, right? My people. God doesn't, ex- doesn't expect the senators to all do it. If my people, you and me, will humble ourselves and pray. And guess what? Turn from our wicked ways. It's us. I've got to repent. I've got to get right. Turn from my wicked ways. Then what? God's going to hear and heal. Oh, Lord. One more tonight. We'll be done. Number seven. Number seven on the list is Tyre. Look at chapter 23. Good old Tyre. Tyre's right there, right above. Look at Jerusalem. Go north a little bit. You see Tyre and Sidon. That's the traditional land of the Phoenicians who Isaiah is addressing in chapter 23. The burden against Tyre, the burden against Tyre. Well, you ships of Tarshish, for it's laid waste so that no house, no harbor from the land of Cyprus is revealed to them. Be still, you inhabitants of the coastland, you merchants of Sidon, whom you cross the sea have filled on great waters and gain of Shiar, the harvest of the river as her revenue. She is a marketplace for the nations. Look at verse 14 to see her end. Wail, you ships of Tarshish, for your strength is laid waste, and it shall come to pass in that day that Tyre will be forgotten 70 years according to the days of one king. And the end of 70 years it will happen to Tyre as in the song of the harlot. Take a harp, go to the city, you've forgotten a harlot, make sweet melody, sing many songs that you may be remembered, and it shall be at the end of 70 years that the Lord will deal with Tyre. She'll return to her hire and commit fornication with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. Her gain and her pay will be set apart for the Lord. It will not be treasure nor laid up. Her gain will be for those who dwell before the Lord to eat sufficiently for fine clothing. Tyre and Sidon there was the capital of the Phoenician Empire, a seafaring people who lived in the area which is now Lebanon, just north of Israel. Their city of Tyre was known as a cultural city of wealth and power. Isaiah talks about her being forgotten for 70 years. Now, historically, 200 years after chapter 23 was written, Nebuchadnezzar, now the king of Babylon, a series off the pages of history, Babylon's now making the same sweep. The same sweep. Taking over the same nations. Assyria was taken over. They're making the same sweep. They come to Tyre and Sidon. And while they're laying siege to the city, secretly, secretly, The people of Tyre moved their capital to an island half a mile offshore. And when Nebuchadnezzar broke through the city, he found no one there, but the capital was now a half mile out to sea. So Nebuchadnezzar did not destroy them, but leaving a garrison of soldiers, he made them irrelevant all the days of the Babylonian Empire, which, guess how many years were left of prominence for the Babylonian Empire once he did that? Seventy. Isaiah's writing this 200 years before it happened. 70 years after Babylon passes off, or after Nebuchadnezzar tries to make an invasion, the Persian Empire uh, lets Tyre become a metropolis again, just as Isaiah predicted. But in the years of Alexander the Great, Alexander wanted to conquer the city, but ran into the same problem as Nebuchadnezzar. They moved the city a half mile out to sea. Alexander took the rubble from the old city and he built a causeway out to the new city and destroyed Tyre for good. By the way, prophesied word for word in Ezekiel chapter 26 and 27. We'll look at it and study it in a couple months when we get there. Fascinating, the accuracy of the scriptures. But that's what we see in all the prophecies. No matter who God's talking to. He says, Babylon, 
I know you're just a city trying to deal with the Assyrians, but someday you're going to be a world power and you're coming to Judah. You're going to take over Jerusalem. But be careful because I'm going to judge you too if you're not right with me. And it happened exactly. Moab, Moab. Man, a great girl named Ruth came from you and I want to do great things in you, but don't repent. Don't be, don't be so prideful and pig-hearted, but Moab wouldn't listen. And guess what? The word happened to them just as God said because God knows what was going on in Moab. He looks at Assyria. He knows what will happen with them. He, he, he looks at Tyre. He knows what will happen with them. He looks at Damascus and Syria and Egypt and Arabia and Jerusalem. He says, I know what's going on if you'll just trust me and serve me. So big walkaway lesson tonight. Guess what? He also knows about you. He knows about you. And so often, listen, I'm not preaching to you. I'm preaching to me tonight. I forget that. I think, Lord, you don't understand. What a statement is that? Lord, you don't understand. <laughs> Lord, you don't understand. Here's what I'm up against. Lord, you don't know. You've got to work this out, Lord. Or can I help you? Lord, let me help you. I'm, I'm so good at, at thinking things through. Let me help you. Really? How much better, how much better would it to sit back and say, God, I trust you. I'm going to do what Jesus says to do in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness and realize you'll take care of all the things. Church, I know tonight's been a lot of history and prophecy. And can you just take this away from tonight? God knows you just like he knew Babylon, just like he knew Jerusalem. He knows you. He knows what's best for you. And if you and I will make it our passion, if we'll make it our focus, just to get to know him, I promise you, you'll be okay. In fact, more than okay, you'll be blessed. The mistake you and I so often make, oh, I make it all the time, is I get so wrapped up in what I think needs to happen, what I think needs to transpire. Lord, if you just do this, I'd never ask for anything else. What am I, eight? I mean, we pray that kind of stuff. And yet it never works. Why? Because that's not what you're really looking for. You, you, I'm so excited. I'm knocking furniture over up here. Listen. The one-year Bible this morning, if you're reading it. Rachel, one of Jacob's wives. Whole nother sermon for a whole nother time. But she says to him, give me a son. I want a child. And Jacob's like, oh. I don't know. I'm doing all I can. <laughs> seems to be a problem between you and God. Want to talk about it? I have lots of other kids with other girls. What's your problem? I don't know. I got to have a son. And then, and then, and then, and then, and then, God gives her a son. Did you, did you catch what she named him? Now I want another son. What? What? She's there saying, I need a son. God finally says, okay, gives it to her. And she goes, I'm naming you. I need another son. What? You know what that that spoke to my heart today? Whatever we think we want, it's not what we need. Whatever we shake the prayer chain, you know what you need? You need Jesus. You need to love Jesus, walk with Jesus, dwell with Jesus, fall in love with Jesus. Oh, but my bills need to pay. You don't think he knows that? Oh, there's problems with my kids. You don't think he's aware of that? 
He's like calling out the exact date Tyre will be destroyed. You think he's like, I didn't know about you. Are you kidding me? He knows about your stuff. But your job, my job, is just to seek first his kingdom. Just to fall in love with him. Because listen, listen, the stuff you think you want, he may even give it to you, but you know what? You'll just want something more. Because you're longing for him. Here's the good news. He's already here. You don't have to shake him out of the heavens. You don't have to connive to find your way in. He's already here. So tonight you can say, I surrender. I seek first your kingdom. I trust that you know more than I will ever begin to figure out about my life and the whole world of nations. So I'm going to trust you and love you and get to know you and watch. Watch what God does, friends. Father, Father, what a name that you call us, you bid us to call you Father. You, you are the God that looks into the future and you see intricacies about empires that passed off the scene 2,000 years ago. But Lord, you saw it, you knew it, and, and, and it fulfilled perfectly. And yet that God is our Father, meaning you love us, you're for us. But I know how I feel about my kids. I want the world for them. If I had it in my power to give them what was the best, I would do it without a, without a thought. Lord, you're our Father. You know us like you know Babylon, Jerusalem, Assyria. You know us and you love us. So I pray, I pray that we would trust in a father's love tonight. That we would stop worrying about the give me a son and give me this and give me that and I need that and let me. Would we just worry about falling in love with you, Jesus? Could we just worry about making you our passion tonight, Lord? Knowing you'll take care of the things, knowing you'll take care of the stuff, but knowing what our heart really wants. It's you, and you're right there. You're right there. Let us not miss it tonight. Let us call out to you, embrace you, love you. Friend, right now, as we close with a song, I want, it, I want it to be about you and Jesus right now. Maybe, maybe you've never surrendered your heart to the Lord. Come on, friend, tonight's the night to stop running, to stop arguing with God, to receive the free gift of eternal life and salvation that he offers you. Run to him. Most of us, and you already know the Lord, you know what? Run to him tonight. Let's make the next just couple of minutes. Your kids are great. Your kids are fine for just five minutes before we walk out the door. Let's reconnect with Jesus. Let's tell him we love him. Let's trust him with our lives. Let's do that right now as we worship. If you want to stand, you stand. If you want to kneel, you kneel. Just express to the Lord how you want to express 
for me, sometimes I just lift up my hands. I say, Lord, you got to take this. I can't figure it out. I don't know what to do, but I trust you and you alone. However you want to just express yourself to the Lord tonight, between you and him, let it happen. Let it happen. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Enough said. Have a wonderful night, you guys. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Just appreciate you guys tremendously. Hope to see you sometime this weekend.